Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Faces podcast brought to you by Earth Refuge, the world's first legal think tank dedicated to climate migration. My name is Polly Nash, and I'm one of the correspondents for Earth Refuge. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Camilla Schaefer, a firefighter for a hand crew in California. This summer, Cami was fighting the Dixie Fire, California's largest single forest fire in its history. And today we'll be talking about her experiences of the job and the growing threat that forest fires pose to people around the world. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Cami. How are you? Hi, Volly. Uh, I'm doing well uh, now that season's kind of over for us right now. But yeah, it was it was a long season this year. And um, yeah, I'm really, really happy to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you so much. And I guess I'll just start off with, can you tell our listeners how long you've been a firefighter for and maybe what was the training process like? Yes. So this is my first year working on a hand crew, which is a wildland, a crew of 20 people. And we fight wildland firefighting uh, throughout California. So I work in the central coast right now, but we have a contract with Cal Fire. So we're able to work both in the South Ops, which is Southern California, all the way to North Ops, Northern California. And in particular for the Dixie Fire, it was in the North Ops area of California. So as my first year, at the beginning of season, we hike every single day um, with our equipment, which is about 45 pound pack. And we're going through the steepest terrain that we have locally, just to kind of practice where we work. So our workouts can be pretty difficult once we get into pretty steep terrain, but you're required to meet certain times for hikes so that you're able to continue and do the job when you're out there. But previously to this hand crew, I attended the fire academy up in Allen Hancock, which is in Santa Barbara. And I was with them last year. And then after that year, I got hired with um, a local crew here. Oh, wow. So long training process then. Yes. Yeah. And what made you want to become a firefighter? Did you always sort of know? No, I came out to UCSB and I was playing water polo at the time. And I studied uh, GIS, which is geographical information systems. So I was making a lot of maps when I was in college and the Thomas fire had come, which was at that point when it came through the largest wildfire in California. And that was in, in Santa Barbara. And I was a, a third year at UCSB and the Thomas fire was coming and I, we were doing maps for some of the fire and kind of like using that fire as a way for us to learn a little bit more about maps. And that's when I realized, oh, I, I, could, I could, instead of being here on the computer making these maps, I could be out in the field because it kind of aligns with what I'm studying. I played sports in college, so I wanted to continue having, I still wanted to maintain physical uh, condition. And then the third one was I always wanted to work helping out my community. And all those three kind of aligned with the fire service. You know, um, we help our local community. We're funded by our, our, our local taxes and we get to maintain physical conditioning. And I get to work in with maps and all that. So wildland firefighting, actually interested me and a lot more than structure firefighting. So I was very fortunate enough to, to land a spot on a local crew here, hand crew, because it's one of the best in, in California. 
Yeah, wow, that sounds like it suits you perfectly. And just for our listeners, do you mind if you briefly describe the difference between the two different types of firefighting you were talking about? Yeah, so um, in California, it's just because we have a lot of uh, wildfires. Um, We do have wildland firefighting and you have structure firefighting. So structure firefighting, they're answering 911 calls for you know, residential areas. So whether it's commercial or um, residential homes, you can also call like Santa Barbara County or Ventura County. And if there is a vegetation call, they'll, they will send a hand crew and we'll go to vegetation fires. Um, so they first started as vegetation fires and then they could switch into different types of fires um, as they grow. And then we'll get more resources coming to the fire. So For example, the Dixie fire was up north, but they made sure that they had all resources could go go to that fire. Wow. Yeah. And I can't believe, well, I'm pleased you you brought up the Dixie fire because as I mentioned earlier, that was, I think to date, that's California's largest single forest fire in history. And I believe this was your your first fire. Is that right? Uh That (laughs) is correct. (laughs) It was, yeah, to start, it was I was building so many slides um, that I've never seen before, obviously. Um, And gaining that experience there was, for me, I was just, you know, in awe every day. I was like, wow, this is what's happening. Look at this plume growth. Look at, you know, we're moving so quickly because certain aspects of that fire just, you know, wind was was a, a really big factor one day where it just, it pushed miles and miles. And at that point, you there's times where you're doing line construction and there's times where you have to sit back and kind of let the, the weather's has, it's it's doing its thing. It's too dangerous to put uh, boots, what they say, boots on the ground when the wind is like 50 miles per hour and it's going to fire behavior so intense. No one's going to put boots on the ground right in front of that. And so there's times where we had to observe and watch and it was a good, it was kind of a really good learning opportunity that the Dixie uh, fire provided for a lot of us because we got to see this intense fire behavior. Um, and that's due to to a number of things. The fire behavior triangle in wildland is like weather, topography, and fuel. And uh, we're dealing with a weather, ha- we pay attention to like RHs, which is relative humidity, how much moisture there is in the air. And we were in single digits out in the Dixie fire. So you could understand how hot it was and how dry it was. And then when you're dealing with fuels, you're, you're, you're making, you're checking the life fuel moisture of the fuels, which at that time, you know, some of the life fuel moisture was under 60% or at 60%, which is, which is critical. Um, and that is the life fuel moisture showing you how much moisture there is in the fuel. Um, if it's under 30%, it's considered dead. Uh, under 60 is critical because that's just going to ignite. That's the fuel for the fire is all the brush Mm. and it being so dry. You can, you can kind of see how between really hot weather, really dry brush and winds and topography up there, you know, with really steep terrain, things are going to run, fire's going to run and fire's going to have space to, to go. So yeah, Dixie fire was just a really, really good fire for me to learn on and to watch. And I, and I just you know there's times where you're just sitting there and you're watching a fire push for miles in one day, which was kind of obviously for me first time, but 
for a couple of people on the crew is also their first time seeing something like that and watching vertical bloom growth the way it was on the Dixie was, was pretty intense um, just to say the least. But yeah, we were at the time we were seeing, oh, kind of making bets. <laughs> we see this out of humor, but making bets on will it reach, will it reach a million? Will it go over 800,000 acres? Like we had bets going, we're like, there's no way it's going to reach that much, you know, but every day just kind of kept chunking away. And we didn't get as, as soon as you felt like, Hey, we're tying this together. It would blow up on another spot. And, and it's so big that winds are going every single direction. So every single part of the fire at one point or the other is getting their own, Hey, it's their turn to get the winds this time, you know? And so they got to be ready. So it's kind of blowing up all over the place, but you know, you just have to, you have to make sure you're making the calls that are going to be safe for all the firefighters and for the town. So you're really looking at, Hey, if we could, if we could, you know, maybe burn here in this area. So we burn before the fire gets here uh, because we don't have structures in the way is, is that possible? So we're, we do a, a number of tactics there and my crew boss and our superintendent, they make sure that the tactics follow our, for firefighters, it's, it's number one is life. We don't want any loss of life. Two is property. And then three is uh, the environment. We're also trying to protect the environment because we were at Lassen Volcanic, a beautiful, you know, national park. So how can we, you know, make sure that there's no life loss, there's no property damage and that we're protecting the environment and so there was a lot of times our tactics, you know, we couldn't use retardant drops at the national park because the retardant drops are this chemical that falls on the trees and allows it for it, for the fire to not, to not burn. It's this penetrative chemical. So the Dixie fire, it was just a, lo- a number of tactics that had to be thrown out there for this particular fire. You know, once it started getting into national park land and fed land, you have different standards on what you can and cannot do. Um, what you can cut and what you can't cut too. For us, if we're talking um, our line construction, our crew does mainly line construction. So Mm -hmm. it's, hey, when we're at Lassen, we're not cutting all these beautiful trees down. We, We can't, we're at a national park, you know? We have to somehow you know, you can't leave scars on the trees. There's, there's certain things you, you have to be very methodical and you have to think about every little cut that you're doing because this is a national park and we're thinking big picture. Yeah, the Dixie Fire, I learned a lot of, about whether or not I was like, fatigue was a, was a big factor too. And after, you know, after 14 days with 20 people with different personalities and you just have to keep the morale up and, and that's always hard because everyone's a different age and everyone has different stuff at home too. So being able to, to be a good crew member is essential when you're on a 14 day roll. You can imagine 20 people, you know, no showers, really little sleep, just like by day 10, everyone's just ripping each other apart. And, <laughs> and, and it's just like, okay, enough is enough. I'm tired, don't, you know? So yeah, keep no, the morale up is hard. Yeah, thank you for, gosh, such a thorough answer. You've, you've really, fascinated me with all of with all of that yeah you've touched on lots of things I wanted to ask about but would you say that's one of the most challenging aspects of the job 
you know, obviously the huge physical exhaustion, but maybe the mental exhaustion. Yeah, I think the, I think both, you know, go hand in hand. It also comes to what the assignments that you have during the day, you obviously want to finish your assignment and you're, you're getting pushed to finish an assignment that needs to be done for the fire. So you have to think about, and our, our, my crew boss is spectacular at this. He says, okay, what day is it? How are people feeling? Can we accomplish this goal? And, and if so, if we can, let's do it. But if things start tripping us up, if people start getting tired or cramping or something like that, we're just going to have to call it. We're working with, you know, machinery or, you know, we got guys with chainsaws. We have, we're on a steep mountain. It's hot. We have each of us carry six liters of water, but you could run out of water if you're, you know, drinking too much. All these factors come into play and it's whether or not your team is able to, to do something. And there is a mentality of everyone wants to finish the job. There's that, you know, we call it the macho mentality of like, we want to be aggressive firefighters. We want to, but safety is, is first. So our crew boss does a good job of kind of checking in with us, but fatigue for sure can cause people getting irritated, people, you know, not hydrating enough, you know, you're not getting enough sleep. Sometimes you're waking up, sometimes you have a 24 hour shift or it, it all really depends on what your assignment is. And yeah, at the end, at the end of it, it's how much you've trained comes into play, how much communication you and your crew have of, Hey, you know what? I'm not feeling so good. You know, I'm, I'm getting like, I'm getting sick. Oh, if one guy gets sick on the crew, you know, all 20 of us are going to get sick at some point. You can't really isolate there, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, someone gets a cold or, the, or something small or like, a little stomach bug, all of us go down, you know, <laughs> and in different days and, and just with the lack of sleep, you're not having a full recovery. And so I would say fatigue and exhaustion is definitely um, one of, one of the hardest things to, to try to deal with when you're out there, because you're also, it, it is a little bit of a stressful um, situation. You're trying to contain this this, yeah, this, I think a problem. little bit stressful is probably yeah. an understatement for most of us. <laughs> uh, and you're, and maybe for me, it's not um, as stressful because it's my first year, and um, I'm, I'm not, high, I'm getting orders from my crew boss, you know. And so for me, I'm like, okay, line construction, that's my deal. But he understands the bigger picture. But Cheese is like, hey, hey guys, it can't cross this road because we have all these potential for structure, and people higher up are super stressed. And then we're like, okay, we got to get this assignment down so that this little piece fits this little piece in the puzzle. And it's kind of this big puzzle where all crews are, are have a little piece and it just all adds up and it's little by little. And it's funny because the Dixie map is so big that you do work and it like a little bit of black shows up and you're like, oh, that's it. (laughs) We did eight hours yesterday and that's it. It's hard. You know, it's, it's super hard, but yeah, the mental the mental and physical exhaustion is definitely, um, the, I would think, the hardest thing to navigate. Mm-hmm. And I imagine firefighting is predominantly a male profession. Is this true? And like, what have your experiences been like of this? Yeah, so I think it definitely attracts more males to the job. It's not fun to not shower for a while um, and to be gone <laughs> for a long time and and to be out. You're out. There's days where you're just out spiked out for 14 days. You're out um, 
in the wilderness for 14 days doing an assignment. And I think that type of work attracts more males, more guys. My crew, I, when I first started, it was, uh, there was two girls on, on my crew, me and my friend. And for wildland, I would say uh, it's a lot less um, women doing the wildland firefighting. More women are trying to get into the profession and they're going into the structure firefighting to the floor positions, but there's not many females out there um, doing the wildland firefighting. I know in Central California, we do try to recruit like women athletes, but it's definitely a male dominated profession. And I think it just attracts more males. They're like, oh, you're going to go work. You're going to use chainsaws. You're going to cut down big trees. You know, you're going to be out there with your boys. Everything's the boys, the boys, the boys, you know? And at that point, I'm just like, okay, I'm doing it for the boys too. You know, here, here I am because this is, this is my crew. Um, but yeah, you, there's certain things that you have to adapt to. Um, and it feels like having yeah 19 brothers. And sometimes you have to have thick skin because they'll pick you apart. And there's things you have to be just like, you have to go through yourself. It's just a little bit difficult. And you're not really talking about, you know, things that women go through all, to them because they're just like, they're so tunnel vision uh, <laughs> into their job and what they want to do. And like, it's, it's fun. It's, it's super fun to have them. But yeah, I would say I don't see a lot of a lot of women out there. And can you that, briefly explain for our listeners when you say you do the line cutting and the fire lines, what does that actually entail, that construction? Okay, so our crew, for my specific crew, we run four saws, so four chain chainsaws, and they're up in the front. And then the rest are Pulaski's. So these we have an axe head and then we have a pike, and we were constructing a fire break in between the brush. So as fire is coming towards us or once fire has come around the area, then they put us in and say, okay, this burnt yesterday. It's still smoldering. So it's still actively burning. However, we're gonna create this line, whether it's six feet or 10 feet, we're gonna create this line in the brush that's gonna be able to hold the fire. So if it if wind comes and pushes that little smoldering fire towards us, our line is going to be able to handle it. Our line is going to be able to contain that fire. So we have certain specs. So my boss will say, okay, I want a six foot cut. So chainsaws have to cut six feet of brush away. And he wants a three foot scrape, which that's, that's, that's the position I'm in. So I, I scrape the dirt. So once all the brush is all cut, and thrown to the side that's not on fire. You want to throw all, because that's all that fuel. That's all that fuel. You grab the brush, you throw it to the green side, they call it. So you throw all the brush to the green side. And then there's like six of us with scrape tools. And we go ahead and scrape a line mm -hmm. right where the brush was cut. And what that line is, it's mineral soil. So the fire, once it reaches that mineral soil, it no longer has any fuel for three feet. So it can't really creep. And if any of the brush was on fire, it has six foot. It can't really, the embers shouldn't be able to push six foot to the other brush, or sometimes we'll do a 10 foot cut. So that line is being constructed on the perimeter of the fire. So you, you, cut, you cut that line and you're cutting and you're cutting and you're cutting because fire you have fire a little bit on the ground and you're just going to cut a perimeter because you're going to contain it. Because if, 
wind blows or anything, at the end of the day, what makes you super proud is leaving that line and going back down to, to chow dinner time. And you, you're like, oh, we have our name on that line. Like nothing's crossing our line. We did a really <laughs> good job. It takes the whole crew to do that. And you're, it's not like you're doing that flat ground. You're scaling, you're scaling a mountain or whatever the terrain is of the fire. So that, that's what makes it really difficult. It's like, you're like, oh, you look at the fire map and you go, oh my gosh, they're on top of the mountain. They're hiking that mountain while they're cutting line. But you need boots on the ground because you, you, need, you need to have the perimeter taken care of, contained was what they say. Yeah. And so that's line construction to contain the fire. Wow, thank you for explaining that. Earlier you talked about, you know, protecting towns and homes and people obviously mm -hmm. is the, the big priority. Did you visit any towns destroyed by the Dixie Fire? We went to Greenville originally. And, but Greenville was, was a town that was Dixie Fire tore through. And we were there at the beginning um, of the Dixie Fire when Greenville was still intact and we were... Um, our crew doesn't really do structure protection. The only time we did some structure protection was early on and we were kind of creating what they call defensible space around a house. So in California, every fire department wants to see this. They wanna see your house and they wanna see a hundred foot clearance from your house to the nearest like trees and, and brush. Mm -hmm. So that's ideal for some of the houses that um, if you can see, if you can, picture California you have houses also on mountains where there's big brush you know and so you're like oh it's kind of like a little tinderbox out there if houses had a hundred feet clearance every direction we can we can confidently say okay we'll try to do the best that we can to save that house but it's 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 gonna stand it's gonna it's not gonna get too much heat so that's where we come in with our crew with chainsaws and stuff they'll, they'll cut all the trees away You'll close all the curtains in the house. You'll make sure there's no like pine needles on the roof or anything like that, because all that can have little embers that can sit and hold heat for days. And then eventually it'll just keep creeping and, and light something up. So the defensible space and um, the Dixie fire was as if the fire was moving so fast that they were like, okay, structure protection, Greenville. Okay, wait, fire's coming too close. Everyone out structure protection, um, old station. We did that. And then that night the fire was coming. So we left and old station held through, but Greenville didn't hold as much, but it's all about whether the houses were already prepped. And you kind of think, oh, if you live in this area, you would, you would want to prep your house. You know, you, you don't, it's too hard for all of us that day of to cut a hundred foot clearance on every single house that's there. And you can imagine just all the resources are being pulled in. It's just crowded after a while. And you can't really crowd an area like that because you have to think, you know, number one, life, life protection, everyone that's in here, are they going to be able to get out? If the fire pulls out, are all these firefighters going to be able to like get out? Um, and so at some point you're just, you know, the engines, which, which, I'm, I'm, I feel like I can't really speak for them because I haven't done the, the structure protection um, job yet. We've done the cutting around, but they're the ones with, you know, the hose and, and actively putting flames out, you know? So I don't know how, how stressful that job is, 
but I can imagine it being very high stakes. You know, you have a house right in front of you that this is your job right here. And embers are coming and winds coming and you have all this water, but you know, it's just not really going your way. So you have to, you have to get out. And yeah, um, yeah Greenville was, was the town that I visited before it got burnt over and we, our assignment led us to another area over there by Lassen. So we didn't get to go back and see. And also our boss is, is not one to go back and, and, and see it. We'll, we'll eventually uh, we'll see it, whether it's on a, in a video or a newspaper or something like that but he's very job oriented where he's like, Oh man, you guys, like you did a really good job at like, Elm, like Butte Creek out area, like those structures, you know, stayed because of your help. So that was great. But you know, Greenville today did get like burnt over. We don't need to go and see it. Cause we understand you can see everyone's faces or everyone's just more, I'll just goes kind of down. Cause you're just like, Oh, that sucks. We just, we just lost some structures on this fire. That's the last thing we want, you know? So dealing with, with that, you try not to be like a, a emotionally attached to, to that, but you can't really help it. That's people's houses. That's some people's livelihood. That's all they have. So you just, you just like kind of think about it and, and then you hustle the next day. Cause you're just like, all right, no more, you know, you're just, it's sad. It hits, it hits home. And even though for some of us, Greenville wasn't our home, it still hits home because you're just like, oh man, that's somebody, that's somebody's spot. That's somebody's home that's in ashes. And that's just, that's not a good feeling, but work has to continue because that was early on too. And Dixie Fire kept burning for a month, a month and a half or two months after that. So you just have to get back on it and and understand that, okay, this, hey, this thing has some power, this, we need to, we need to figure out our tactics here, and try our best again. Yeah, that mental strength is really amazing, really inspiring. And in terms of, um, in terms of climate change, how much do you and your crew view the fires as a man-made issue? Or do you, do you separate it from the causes when you're in the field? Every day, our crew goes over weather. This is a big, big thing for California. Weather in terms of heat and in terms of our life fuel moisture, like I mentioned earlier, with with the drought that California has been having, we just don't have enough recovery in rain. Every year, it seems like it's getting worse while fires are getting bigger. Fuel is getting drier. Water isn't getting here. Um, It's not raining as much, so the recovery, it's just, we're not recovering in terms of fuel. So I think all the crews understand that pretty well. Yeah. So I, I, I do think our, our crew is aware of, um, climate change Our I know it's funny because I do know some of their views on climate change. I personally understand with my community that we definitely have an impact and I think that our crew is slowly understanding as fires are getting more intense. And we're realizing that the Dixie Fire, a million acres burned. California being in a drought and us having weather, it's like, okay, how can we mitigate this situation? Is it just the fact that we're in a huge drought and we're just not getting water? You know, why is that? So I do think 
that our crew has thought about climate change in that way. But I know some of their views, some of them are like so tunnel vision. I think that there's no bigger picture than the job itself, if that makes sense. Every year, just we're just like, okay, we're, we have more, more of a drought. Why? How are we going to mitigate this? What kind of fire behavior are we expecting this year? At that point, I do think that our higher up think about climate change every year. As a collective, I don't want to speak for all the wildland firefighters. As a collective, I don't know whether or not they think it's man-made or not. But personally, my view is we have a, I was going to say gnarly impact. We have, we have a, uh, we have. No, I would agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say we have a gnarly impact in our micro environment. And with everything that we're doing, is it going in the right direction? From what I'm getting with all these records breaking, doesn't seem like it, you know, that's just me. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure our listeners (laughs) agree with you, but do you think, you know, in terms of broader public awareness of climate change, because California has experienced devastating fires this summer in particular, do you think the broader public attach that and those fires, that devastation to climate change or? Oh, for sure in California. That's on every year, the agenda for, for the state. And we are a state that, I mean, that's, that's always has been the talk for years and years and years. So I think we lead we have the biggest wildfires, but we're also leading in some of our climate change initiatives. But it takes more than just our state. You know, we have fires in Oregon, you have fires in Idaho, Montana, you have neighboring fires in Nevada that affect us. But I do think, I do think California, just as a state, understands and is mitigating that in ways. And I do think the public, I think the public uses like, and this, this is a thing is it's after the fact we use the fire as a way to say, Hey, we reached, we reached a million acres. What, what the heck is going on here? But if there could be a pre fire, it would make it easier for towns and all of us, you know? So I, I do think the public in California is aware of man-made climate change. It's been something that our state has talked about every year. And me as I live in a co-op and a very active co-op I understand that the town I'm in right now I'm currently living in Santa Barbara so that's climate change is I mean we started Earth Day it's something that (laughs) our local government talks about all the time but also California as a whole will talk about it but some parts it's not a priority and so I do think overall most of the population is aware but it's after the fact, which is disastrous, you know, that we're, we use this, this devastating fire that caused huge amounts of loss to then put something in place. So it's kind of that like, oh, now what do we do instead of what could have we have done? And that's something that I would like to see, you know, be more in conversation of like, how can we fix something for the years to come instead of, all right, because we got this one, now we're going to do this. So but I do think as a state, California is, is aware of climate change and it's been in conversation. Whether or not other states are, I'm not sure, but I just know maybe it's just my little bubble of like <laughs> activism, co-op activism is, is mm-hmm. stoked on speaking about that and Green New Deal, all these deals. Um, I just think California is definitely aware of the fact. I just don't know what 
everyone individually is doing to mitigate the situation yeah does that does that answer your question definitely and that's definitely something I experienced in California you know I really think it's about spreading that conversation to other states and globally really yeah well thank you Cami it's honestly been such a pleasure and inspiration I mean before we end is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know that we haven't covered in this interview No, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for for just talking about the Dixie Fire and exposing some of the things that we're going through in California currently. But it was it was an absolute pleasure. 